Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today, we'll be reviewing Planar Adventures. This is part of our book review series. We review every core book in the Pathfinder RPG. Christian, Planar Adventures is the last hardcover core book for first edition. Brings a tear to my eyes. It's the last we're going to see. And it's a good thing to end with. It kind of solidifies the world of Galarian. We already know all there is to do on most of the material places. Now we're learning the nitty-gritty about all the planes around the material plane. Christian, uh, no we don't. We have not yet explored the Catfolk Sanctuary <laughs> to the south of the map. So I believe there is still some left to do in Galarian. <laughs> You'll just have to publish it yourself, Caleb. Christian, they're they're guarding an unspeakable evil, and I need to know what that is so I can speak it. Well, there's 258 pages in this book. It's a meaty book. So why don't we jump right into it? Chapter 1, Planar Character. So this is almost all of the player options, all here in this Chapter 1, which is 50 pages. It starts with the playable planar races, which we have gone over in our race overview episodes. This includes the Aphorite, the Duskwalker, and the Gonzi. Which were introduced in this book. It's good here because you just want to know what the list is. Here's a lot of good things about this book. I'll talk more about my inclusion, which is just here's the list of all these things that tie into a certain theme. So here you go. Every player race that you can pick. That has to do something with the planes. After that is all the archetypes introduced in this book. Now, let me say the archetypes in this book are delicious. They're good. They have kind of thrown a lot of pretense out the window and given a lot of these archetypes either very strange and unique or very powerful abilities. I was very impressed with the list. How many do we get in total? There are 12 archetypes introduced in this book, and they're all new archetypes. I don't think any of them are reprinted from an old book. Sadly, we do not find the kineticist here. I remember hearing them talk about saying the kineticist is perfect because four of these planes are elemental. However, adding new material for the kineticist takes pages and pages and pages, and they weren't willing to give that much. I still understand page counts from the world of publishing, especially when you have books like the Cora Rulebook that are huge, but I'm sure somebody who's in that scene does understand. Paper costs money, Caleb, and so does ink. <laughs> I, di I didn't know this was going to be recently. $60. The lower is the page count, the higher our profit margin. It just makes sense. <laughs> and no one really likes kineticists anyway, so why would they waste page space? Excuse me, sir? Oh, it's the fireplane kineticist. What does he do? I wonder. He's shrouded in mystery. <clears throat> All right, so not only is this the last first edition book, this will be the last episode <laughs> I'm doing with Christian. It's the end of an era. Hope you guys enjoyed this. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do solo shows. Five episodes later, I come back to you crawling on my knees. Please, they're not listening anymore. <laughs> Christian, you were the backbone of the podcast. I need you. I keep making fun of myself, but it's not the same. There's, there's no one to laugh at you making fun of yourself. I'm just the laugh track. Otherwise, the Big Bang Theory wouldn't be so successful. Have you ever watched videos where they take shows and take out the laugh track? Everyone just looks insane and completely socially awkward. That's why you need me, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. What does that say about... I'm insane socially awkward. It matches up. It all fits. So I'm not going to go over any of the archetypes in explicit detail, but I am going to give you the list and highlight the good bits and pieces. So... For the good classes, like Swashbuckler, we get the Azatariel. It's supposed to represent someone from the chaotic good plane, Elysium, so it's got some divine bent. This might just be the new standard Swashbuckler, because it 
kind of just gets better abilities that scale off charisma, and it straight up gets pounce at level 11. Pounce is something they've been extremely restrictive with, because obviously it's the most powerful ability for a marshal, and they just kind of get it. The Chronicler of Worlds is a bard archetype. First off, the art is amazing. It is a black woman in a silk red dress with a violin. The art, just look it up, it is Excellent. I like the book, like, attached by chains to her belt. With my goodness, is, is that a padlock? You're not getting into this book. Unless you just slide it out of the chains. I mean, you can't really chain the book <laughs> I'm not really... well, especially not the way this art is done. <laughs> the chains look kind of loose, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that padlock's just... That book's just going to slide out. <laughs> Those secrets aren't safe I, at Every all. four rounds, you have to spend an extra action to pick back up your book that you dropped. The Chronicler of Worlds forsakes morality to learn about all the secrets of all the planes. So it is a bard that's supposed to hop plane to plane, learn about the dark secrets within them that are beyond mortal comprehension. The interesting thing it does is that it scales off of int instead of charisma, which is, I always love scaling off of different stats. It also interacts with the new planar infusion mechanic, which we will talk about more when we talk about the planes. The Dream Thief Rogue is a rogue that interacts with dreams. They can punch your dreams. They count as a phantom. They kind of get some spiritualist phantom abilities, and it's really janky. But if you want to soothe people to sleep and touch their dreams, then this is a good archetype for you. The Energist for the Alchemist is a very simple archetype. Simply, instead of getting bombs that do elemental or fire damage, you get bombs that do either positive or negative energy damage, and that's the whole mechanic here. Christian, I, I always say your name. I don't know what's my obsession with saying your name. Who else would I be addressing? <laughs> I like hearing it. The fighter archetype is the Gloom Blade. These guys are pretty cool because they summon their weapons out of shadow stuff. Let me tell you, whenever I play games like Skyrim and stuff, or I, I even Pathfinder, I'm looking for a way to summon weapons. There's just something cool about it. I'll take a feat. I'll waste a feat. I'll waste different things. I could just have a normal sword, but I love the idea of summoning one. But in Skyrim, when you do, you have to use like a magic user and all this crap. Finally here, I get it. Thank you, Pathfinder. And on top of that, it's actually a pretty darn good archetype. It's actually an insane archetype. You summon shadow weapons. It can be literally any weapon. You can just summon it. It's made of shadow. It has an enhancement bonus. And all of your weapon trainings apply to it. And you can also do random stuff like increase the reach of the weapon. Make the weapon ignore hardness because it's made of shadow. For losing your heavy armor proficiencies, you get a lot back with these shadow weapons. You sort of get the War Priest thing, a different version of it where you can, you know, change its magic and its properties as you level up. And there's even a feat just for the Gloom Blade that lets him, you know, summon his weapon faster, which is cool. It's called Gloom Storm. <gasps> Gloom Storm! <laughs> we said we were going to stop stealing other podcast jokes. <laughs> Listen, they invited us to do They said to everyone they want this to be a worldwide phenomenon. I'm just doing my part. <laughs> the cleric gets the idealist archetype. It's not very interesting. Instead of getting a domain, you bond yourself to the plane of your deity. What's neat flavor-wise is that when you channel energy, you turn the area into, like, the area of the plane that you're associated with. So if you channel positive energy, like, the area around you becomes the positive energy plane, blindingly bright and spectacular colors, things like that. Pact Witch is super boring. Instead of getting a patron, you are the patron of a plane, and it basically acts like a patron. Really nothing special here. It's just plane over patron. Planar Scout for the Ranger, another simple one. Just basically, instead of having a favored terrain, you get a favored plane, and you use some of the new planar adaptation 
abilities that we had mentioned and will be talking about later. The Portal Seeker for the Investigator might be the new default Investigator, or at least it's going to be for me. You replace all of your boring, stupid poison lore and poison resistance with portal stuff. You can find portals. You know where portals go. You can extend portals. You get an ability called portal points. Do you have any idea how badly I want something called portal points in my life? <laughs> the druid gets progenitor, which essentially just switches out your ability to transform into elementals to transform into fey. Thank you. Finally. <laughs> it finally happened. I feel like you've mentioned this a couple times. It's finally come full circle. Have I? Yeah, I believe when we were talking about the shifter, you mentioned this a lot. They they got some oh. archetypes to interact with the Fey. Gotcha, gotcha. Definitely in Ultimate Wilderness, there was there was Fey shape, I think, was newly introduced there. I just said definitely, and I think in the same <laughs> sentence, but I think that you guys definitely understand me. The spiritualist gets an archetype called the Soul Warden. Very strange archetype. You don't get a phantom. You, you kind of just give up your phantom because you're releasing it to its afterlife. But instead, you get a little psychopomp familiar, which isn't very strong. It seems like a not very strong archetype, but it's a very flavorful one. Yeah, it does seem like you're giving up a lot of power, which already, from my playing a spiritualist, picking an archetype that gave up power isn't so great. But it is nice that it fits into the natural story progression where freeing your phantom and its horrid existence and pain seems like something you'd want to do at some point strongly disagree <laughs> keep it forever it's not bothering me what do i care and i'm not being negatively affected especially because why I, shouldn't i hurt others especially because i have all these bonuses to mind affecting effects i don't feel any pain <laughs> <laughs> lastly the wizard gets an archetype called world seeker and it's really just wizards don't really do much with their archetypes they know a little bit more about planes they're better at summoning things from other planes and they get protection from planar energy so that's all 12 archetypes a few that are a little bit more boring but like i said the ones that have new mechanics are unique and they're powerful i would definitely suggest looking into them so next we have the feats we're getting 57 new feats and a new type of feat why don't you talk to us about conduit feats conduit feats are feats that are almost like spell-like abilities. When you use a conduit feat, you are actually touching on the energies and powers of another plane. So if you're in an anti-magic field or if your ability to magically connect to other planes is somehow denied to you, you can't use these feats. These feats are powerful. They tend to emulate spells. And they also have the unique mechanic of scaling off of your ranks in knowledge planes. Typically, the more ranks and knowledge planes you have, either the more often you can use these feats or the more powerful these feats become. And across their board, they're all fairly powerful. Learning that more and more I am enjoying seeing things scale off of other than ability scores and level. So we're going to highlight a couple of the feats that we think are interesting or fun. The first one I saw was the Apocalyptic Metamagic. It's like the perfect big bad evil guy meta magic. It doesn't really do a lot, but when the spell goes off in the area of effect, it becomes a land of treacherous ruin. It becomes difficult terrain. It dilapidates plants. It blackens the ground. It makes everything look like it's been devastated. I mean, it sounds cool from flavor, but from gameplay, there's so many ways to avoid difficult terrain, especially <laughs> higher levels you get. Oh no. Well, it only uses up terrain. a spell slot that was one level higher, spell. but it does, all, it implies some other penalties, like penalties on swim and climb and things like that. And you know what? It looks cool. I don't need mechanical justification. I said it. It's true. Don't you know? <laughs> I couldn't hold it back. I really, we're trying not to, but it's just so good. Archon style is a combat feat. And it has a chain. It's a move action. You can defend allies 
from enemies that you threaten. It's kind of cool because sometimes, especially early levels, I have my players like ending their turn and not using all their actions. Sometimes they have a move action left over and they just don't know what to do with it. Here now it's a perfect opportunity for you to use it. And as you go down the feet chain, it becomes less of an action and you incur less penalties on yourself. Not half bad. Note something I wish they would do with style feats. They all start with the same word, Archon. But, like, the first feat is Archon Style, and the second feat is Archon Diversion, and the third feat is Archon Justice, so literally none of them are in the correct space. They are ordered incorrectly. I wish they would just say, here's the first one, Archon Style, indent, here's the next one. They do that in the chart, but not in the description. I don't like it. It makes me angry. It makes me mad. Well, they don't look at any of their feet chains, because they do the same thing. <laughs> Channel Deific Essence is a feat for anyone who can channel positive energy. You need to be pr about level 10 to get it, but you could sacrifice your channel energies to enact the spell Invoke Deity on yourself. We'll talk about that later, but it's actually a fairly high-level spell that has some powerful effects. Chaos Reigns is a conduit feat, so it scales off your knowledge planes, and you can channel the Wrath of the Abyss, and it gives you a slam attack that somewhat scales off of your knowledge planes. It's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah, it's real generic. It's just, it's neat. It's wow. Demonic style. The style feat requires power attack. When you charge, you increase the bonus on your attack roll by one, and you deal two additional points of damage. Getting more damage and attack bonuses on your feats are like what all the good feats do, so something says to me that this is a good feat. Com combine this with pounce. Oh no. What have I done? The rest of the chains of the demonic style are not as good, though. One of my new favorite feats, Flickering Step. It requires nine ranks and knowledge planes, but you get Dimension Door as a spell-like ability. A slightly weaker version of Dimension Door, but what's really cool is that there's a special notation here saying that if you're a fighter, you treat feats such as Dimensional Agility and all the feats that allow you to, like, punch people while teleporting as combat feats, so you can take them as fighter bonus feats, which, like, I already want to be a Gloom Blade with Flickering Step, disappear into shadows, reappear, stab people with different kinds of weapons. It's the edgiest, most badass thing that I want to do. There is a feat chain involving tails, Grasping Tail, Lashing Tail, and Mischievous Tail. It's not super great. It's more, for me, a role-playing thing. The mechanical benefits are, after two of them, you make a, you know, secondary natural attack only when you're wielding manufacturer weapons not when you're doing natural attacks so this can't really help you with a natural attack build and the other thing is that like you can sto grab stowed objects and, and grasp things that are five feet away and who cares because it's very specifically refuses to tell you you're allowed to use it to hold a weapon or a shield because who wants to role play as a kobold with holding a sword or shield in this tail i can't think of anyone who would want to do that how silly but you know, I don't know why they always have to make it so severe. I don't know why they don't just put the same rule as they'd have with vestigial arms on it. Maybe there is some feat out there called vestigial tail or they're keeping it to like the Venara and other races. I don't know, but it's not great, but at least it's something if you're sort of a role player out there, you can do more things with your tail. Though I found that my GMs just let me freaking do it because I'm not usually in-game trying to grab items or make an extra attack on my dumb tail. Healer's Hands is a really, really cool feat where you get to treat deadly wounds as a four-on action and do it as many times as you want up to your rank and knowledge planes. This is amazing. Normally, healing with the heal skill is always so limited by, well, I could do this once per day, you know, per character. And it also takes, that I think, sucks. an hour to do normally. I never knew that. Good to know. I've always sort of let my players roleplay it as it just took a, a few minutes. Oops. 
Yeah, I have to double check that sucker. Uh, but it's really neat. This is awesome. Again, I'm always like, I'm as I said before, I like the scaling up by knowledge planes. It essentially means if you're not playing badly, that you're doing it up to uh, your level. That's that's awesome. So say you're fifth level, fifth level, you're healing, what is that, 25 points, right? A day. Amazing. Yeah, this feat makes non-magical healing much more viable. Expect to see this one a lot, especially in low fantasy campaigns. Yeah, I just double checked. <laughs> Treating deadly wounds usually takes a full hour, and now it takes only a full round action. And there's other details like you don't need a kit now, which was always a confusing rule anyway. And if you're not affected by positive energy, then it doesn't work. And blah 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 blah. If your result exceeds blah blah, you get to add your ranks and plane. It's just cool. There's a lot of cool things about it. Nothing here is bad. Open conduit is a new feat that interacts with your other conduit feats. You basically pick another conduit feat you have. And you treat your number of ranks and knowledge planes as five higher. So if you really like one of these conduit feats, you could take this and make your whole build revolve around it. You can do this with your healer's hands, and now you can just treat deadly wounds all day long. Can I, can I go on a, a little tangent, Christian? I'm, well, I've never been able to stop you in the past. I don't know why you asked That's me permission. <laughs> Christian, have you ever wanted to stop me? <laughs> in second edition, they're trying to do some things to get rid of the... What has been called the happy stick of just buy a couple cheap wands of cure light wounds to heal each other, you know, in between battles, and you don't have to worry about, you know, buying better and better healing items. I don't think that's a huge problem. Let me tell you the first thing that my players want to do at the end of a battle. It's before even freaking looting. It's heal. I, whenever I'm role playing, I enjoy role playing as oh, I just got through a tough battle. I'm panting. I'm holding my wounds. As soon as I start role playing that and voicing that, one of my allies is like, oh, okay, I'll just heal him. I'll give him fun. And we spend like two minutes or three minutes. We do all the light wound, the the heal checks and the the cure light wounds wands, and I'm back to full. It doesn't become a place of great role playing because it goes away like that. It also means it doesn't need to be fixed with whatever weird economy thing they're trying to do. Healing players have shown that healing they just want to get it over with so getting like all this bonuses to the healer's hands and everything it's fine hey everyone it's fine <laughs> we can just heal just let us heal let's our role players let them role play with it but there's it just it just people want to do it listen you have to make changes based off of what people do not what you intend uh, there's a channel in our in our discord server called role playing it was meant to have help people uh find games and play with each other it became where people instead shared role-playing adjacent memes or sharing pictures and cool inspirations for games and i didn't go this is stupid this is not what it's meant to be stop posting this on this channel instead i changed that to be what the role-playing's purpose was because what people were doing with it we just gotta let healing be healing guys just just let it happen all right you don't need to convolute and twist things to get it so it works the way you wanted it to. And I don't even think it's a result of how healing works. It's a result of how combat works. The way CRs and such work, it's not like I'm getting whittled down like, oh, I lost 10 HP this fight. I lost 5 HP this light. I'm getting a little lower. It's like, no, every fight I'm basically taking my entire health worth of damage. Sure. I don't have enough time to have 20 combats in a day. I'm going to have like two or three. Yep. If you're meant to be healed in between each fight 
So don't make it so hard. When you want to have a situation where that happens, there's other things you add to it. Just like when, if you want your players to just have a battle or two each day, that's what happens. But if you want to put your players through a gambit where their per day abilities start having to just to be a little more wise when you use them because you're going to go through a lot of opportunities where you're going to need to use them, then you throw nine combats in a day. You let your GM handle that. But anyway, <laughs> just what, what we're has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> what we're saying is introduce healing surges. What could go wrong? What I'm saying is open conduit cool feet. <laughs> Phase strike. As a move action, you can make an attack that hits touch AC and ignores total cover. That's pretty cool. You can use this a number of days equal to every 10 ranks you have in knowledge planes. Okay, so twice is I guess our limit here. <laughs> Even with the extra conduit feet, you'll still never go above twice. You just get your second one at 15 instead of 20. But that's pretty cool. Harsh limit, but a neat ability. There is the feat Planar Infusion, and as it states, you just get a Planar Infusion, which we're going to talk about when we get to Chapter 3, but this is kind of the enabler for a Planar Adventure. I would say if you're doing a Planar-type adventure, why not just give everyone one Planar Infusion feat for free, let them pick the planes that they like or to the plane that they're going to be attuned to, just to make everything go a little bit easier. There's Tempting Bargain, which lets you have an Eidolon of a different alignment than you. There's some chances your alignment will start shifting every time you level up, which is a cool time for that to happen, by the way, instead of like every time you summon him or something. Uh, I like it just because I need more ways to rules as written reflect things that I like to change. So as a, I normally my GM would be like, yeah, I don't care about alignments and crap. The sort of GMs I play with don't care. If I do play with a GM who's like, no, you're a barbarian, you, or you cannot be lawful, then I need to have ways around it, and this is this will give you that way for the summoner. Tempting Bargain plays almost more like a mini game than a feat. You get an Elon of a different alignment, but every time you level up, you have to start making will saves, or you start moving closer to their alignment until you match their alignment. So the last feat is another conduit feat. It's called Wanderer's Fortune. Requires only three ranks of knowledge planes. As a swift action, you gain the benefits of freedom of movement until the end of your turn. You could use this once per day plus an additional time per day for every five ranks you have in knowledge planes. What? That is insane. That is literally freedom of movement on a feat that you can get at level three. Super strong. Nothing can hold you down. Nothing can stop you. Just you can do whatever you want. There's no there's no rules. There's no reins on me. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so much for your uh, apocalyptic spells. <laughs> exactly, the hard counter introduced in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have spells, 23 of them. And the first one I want to talk about is called Anywhere But Here. So a lot of the spells are honestly kind of boring. There's a lot of spells that just say, oh, things that have a neutral component in their alignment are somewhat inconvenienced by this spell because they're not made of the quintessential lawful good or chaotic evil. But there's some cool ones. The first one is Anywhere But Here. It is a level 4 spell that a lot of the arcane classes get. You and up to 4 willing creatures get randomly plane shifted to some other plane that is random. You roll on a table. Yeah, so, you know, oops, you ended up in the positive energy plane. Guess you immediately die. <laughs> Let me tell you something. This should be an immediate action. This plane shift is a couple levels higher, so that's why you have this instead of plane shift. But I think would be cooler about having the anywhere by here making it different than plane shift. Why in the world I would risk immediately going somewhere where I die is I'm about to die on this plane. And I don't have time to cast a spell. Immediate action. We're out of here. Well, I think a lot of what this book does is that it 
kind of no longer has that limitation of, oh, if you show up on the positive energy plane, you just die. Now your GM has the tools to make a more interesting story than, whoops, you got filled up with positive energy and you exploded. Actually, it looks like you can't go to the positive energy plane. Never mind. Ha ha. Even it's better. I hear on this list. Oh, I'm sorry. If you get 96 through 100, it's GM's choice. <laughs> and so. the GM chooses. Then yes, you can go to the positive energy. I choose for you all to be filled with light and hope so much that you die. If you're confused of why, like, Caleb, this is called the positive energy plane. In the book, it actually talks about, like, one of the great uh, ironicies. I don't I'll take it. I understood it. I get it. <laughs> great. Is that the positive energy plane is less hospitable than the negative energy plane. Less things live in the positive energy plane because it's just, just immediately it was like, I'm so full. It's like, it's Dragon Ball Z where I've, you've tricked the, the, the boss guy to absorb too much power and that defeats him. Oh no. He thought he was ahead. I like the idea of having a wand of anywhere but here and you just have an entire adventure <laughs> focused around trying to get home by going to random planes. Listen, there are TV shows that are like exactly. that. We've been through so many multiverses. We're just trying to get home through four <laughs> seasons before we get canceled. And then your GM rolls a 91 on the first <laughs> teleport and you go back to the material plane. <laughs> uh, but where are the parentheses there, Christian? Random world. Oops, you are on Mars. <laughs> hey, look, that happens to be the sleeping place of an elder deity. Enjoy fighting an old one. And you have to wait 24 hours before you can cast anywhere but here again. So you're stuck wherever you land for 24 hours. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. So now it's also the show 24. That guy went through a whole day without going to the bathroom. <laughs> That's what I was most interested in for that timer. I was like, wow. <laughs> I couldn't make it to the next commercial break. <laughs> but I literally had to take a break from this recording to go to the bathroom. That's That legit happened. Because I drank two bottles of water today. Oh. So the next spell to talk about is Bestow Planar Infusion. These Planar Infusions were introduced in this book. There's a series of spells that give them to you. The level one version of the spell, Bestow Planar Infusion 1, gives you the basic infusion of the plane, which is usually like a skill bonus associated with that plane. So you got to compare this back to the archetypes that gave you planar infusions and say, hmm, is it really worth it for me to get an ability from an archetype if I can just get a wand and tap myself with it? It lasts an hour a level. It's a really long time. It's a level one spell. Yeah. The improved version of the planar infusion is a level four spell, and the greater version of the infusion is a level seven spell. I didn't consider that just now. Actually, I'm I'm in now thinking about getting a lot of this in my campaign I'm in right now. <laughs> uh, it is a plane where we visited the abyss before, thanks Tim, and lost a character. So uh, maybe I'll need this. Diminish resistance. This is pretty cool because it reduces resistances of the creature you targeted. So. If you're really having trouble getting over that fire resistance of a fire dragon, boom, now you've got this. I think it's pretty cool. The deep buffs on enemies that aren't just pure, oh, it's staggered or frightened. Things that take away their advantages. That's neat. It's kind of like a Swiss army knife. Rather than looking for options that allow you to cast spells that deal different types of damage, now you can just have diminished resistance. And when you cast it, you just choose whether you're reducing their acid resistance, cold resistance, so on and so forth. Invoke Deity. This is a level 6 divine spell. It's a very expensive spell. It costs about 3,500 gold to cast it between all the material components. It lasts for 10 minutes a level, and you pick a domain associated with your deity, such as Artifice or air and for the duration you just get some kind of benefit depending on that domain and then as a standard action whatever you want you could switch between the domains that your deity has access to so to give an example if you pick the artifice domain parts of your body are replaced by pistons and gears which is a really cool fantasy that i don't think has been achievable till now 
You can be affected by spells that specifically affect constructs. You are immune to bleed, disease, and poison effects, and you gain a plus four bonus on saving throws against death effects, mind effects, and necromancy effects. This essentially takes up a page and a half. This is a pretty interesting spell. Yeah, there's a lot of options here. You can invoke the void domain. Your clothes and hair seem to float about you as if you are adrift in a weightless environment. You are immune to cold damage and you no longer need to breathe. You can exist comfortably in the depths of outer space. None of these alone are particularly powerful. The power comes from being able to switch between them and the duration of this. And remember, there, and remember, if you are something like a channel energy, there's a feat that allows you to expend your channel energies to get these effects. One of the more, I think scene setting spells of this book is called shadow invasion it's a level four arcane spell and the idea is that you rip open a small rift into the plane of shadow and the area nearby becomes dark and shadow spells are more powerful during its duration but what's really cool is that at the end of this one round of level duration when the rift closes the longer it was open the more likely you are to summon a shadow chitin from the realm of shadow that is under your command. So I kind of almost see this as like a fight scene where the evil guy rips open this hole and you have to go close it to reduce the chances that he's going to summon this big evil thing to come hurt people. I think it's it's awesome. I like these things that have a little drawback with them that involves an actual like monster you have to fight. Like, oh yeah, you can summon a Zill, but there's a 4% chance it's going to decide not to listen to you. Things like that are really, really cool. And I love the idea that this happens at the end of the spell. Well, okay, we finally closed the portal. Oh, why is there a chitin standing here? Roll initiative. Last spell I want to talk about is called the Soul Seeker. And it essentially lets you know essentially where is the soul of somebody who died currently going through the process of the afterlife lets you know exactly where they are and now we jump over to the magic items there's a bunch of cool items that'll help you manage travel and life in the various planes we get four new armor special abilities two new weapon special abilities and six new metamagic rods so let's talk about some of these cool items the coruscating raiment it's rainbow armor, which is enough for me to spend 63,000 gold. Let me tell you that right now. I don't care what else. It's, it's fashionable. It's like prismatic. You vary. And it, when you make a charge, you go ethereal. You, tr you transform into light through the charge and then remanifest at the end. We've talked before about how I like the idea of like you teleport, become lightning, and then go back to a person. I like the idea of here you can charge and then there's just nothing that's going to get in the way of that charge because you get to move through everything as your light. That's pretty cool. This book has enabled pouncing. So incredibly <laughs> hard. You can pounce through anything now. It's a charge, though. You're not making your full round. That's why you get the pounce ability. That's why you be the swashbuckler with the archetype that gives you pounce and then somehow also find a way to wear full plate. I don't care. I'll make it work. Uh, <laughs> and we get Gughide. Let me summarize Gughide to you from the designer's perspective. Fine! You can have four arms and fight with each of them. Leave us alone. Gughide is uh, is in your armor slot that lets you split your two arms, or you split down the middle each and become four arms that can wield weapons and do everything that any four-armed creature could normally do. There you go. Enjoy. It only lasts for 10 minutes and it's once a day. So th this is a great item to give someone your players are going to fight because it's going to be a really cool scene of their arms splitting apart and them holding four cool weapons. But then it's something I don't mind my players having. Yes, they can become incredibly powerful, but it's for one fight throughout the day. It's pretty cool. Still don't know the rules between holding two no, two-handed weapons. It. I'm sure we'll never get those. Mephit head arrows are pretty cool. You're paying 200 gold per arrow, so it's a little expensive, but there's eight different heads that'll do different things. Like it'll do an extra 1d8 point of bludgeoning damage, 
or a Puma Steam will deal 1d4 points of fire damage and sicken the target for three rounds. And a cone behind the hit. So, like, you hit somebody and it spreads out behind them. Very interesting utility sort of arrows. The Shard of Cocoitus. That sounds like a sexual act. It's a plus one frost dagger. It's essentially an icicle. It's an icicle with some flex tape on it. <laughs> or just a strip of leather, but okay. <laughs> But you can use a, a ray of hell frost with it, which is pretty cool. The ring of planar focus. To show you the power of flex tape, I saw this piece of hell frost in half. <laughs> <laughs> no. The ring of planar focus, which you tap it with a tuning fork. Tuning fork, I think we might talk about later. It helps you. It's the focus for plane shift spell. It allows you to go to different planes. Uh, if you tap your ring with it, it will give you sort of like a map, topographical map of certain areas in that plane. Give you some bonuses to knowledge checks about it. The Soul Tether Ring, it's 8,000 gold, and when you die wearing this ring, your soul never crosses the River of Souls, so you become viable for resurrection and raise dead, as long as you have the ring on. You had to be wearing it before dying, though. You can't just slip it on your friend and be like, see, he's fine, he's good. <laughs> What's interesting is that psychopomps and things that, like Phrasma, Consider this ring sacrilegious, and they seek to destroy them whenever possible. How much do they cost? 8,000 gold. Here's a really cool one. The anointed holy symbol. This kind of turns holy water into a resource, which I've had that idea for a while. I have like an archetype sitting on my wiki page that has nothing but just the words holy water priest, because that's just like, I'll do this one day. <laughs> but it is a holy symbol that you fill with holy water, and then when you use it to channel energy, you can choose a variant that you don't normally have based on whatever your portfolio is for your deity what they can actually um, grant you that's pretty cool i like the idea of using that holy water as a resource and getting that different you know uh variety that functionality there homebound timepiece is really 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 cool flavor or i guess has really cool flavor it isn't flavor it is an object actually it's an idea it isn't real this is a game this will keep track of the material plane's time no matter what other plane you're in if you're going through a plane where like time travels time passes twice as fast or in a weird or it varies you will always know how long it's been on the material plane really cool i think it's hard for the gm to accurately be able to describe to you, even though the planar entries do tell you how time sort of travels, it's still going to be sort of difficult for me, for when my player goes, I look at the time, please, how, how much time has passed? Oh, I don't know. I haven't written how many, you guys have been here, I don't know, three days, we didn't really keep track. But still, it's really, really cool. Never idea. give this to your players, because then you can't hide information and make the story when they get back to the material plane, whatever you want it to be. <laughs> The mask of the far traveler is really neat. It's a mask that covers just your mouth and nose. But when you talk, you actually planar creatures hear their native language. Mask of the rabbit prince who doesn't want to wear the Zelda. The mask of the rabbit prince who doesn't want to wear the bunny hood from Zelda. You don't exactly get an increased movement to your speed. Instead, it's like, you know, you're a little faster. You get bonus on initiative checks and stuff like that. And you always have a running start with making a jump. But come on, bunny hood, I'll take it. My character can only be taken seriously if I have giant ears that flop around while I move. It's got a bonus to initiative check, so prepare to see that in every build. It's also a morale bonus. It so stacks it, with like every a lot of morale. I've bonus never heard of a morale checks. bonus to initiative before. That is amazing. That is a power gamey item right there. Not too power gamey, honestly. The protein cloak. There's a from plus one to plus five bonus variant of this cloak. And it'll give you a resistance bonus on a single type of saving throw instead of all of them. 
I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, so why wouldn't I just get a cloak of resistance instead? I'll tell you why. Because it's cheaper and you're not stuck because once a day you can change what saving throw gets the bonus. Item I found very interesting was the portal finding gloves. They're 12,000 gold, but they give you a plus five bonus on perception and knowledge plane checks to identify portals and planar connections. And you automatically learn where those portals go by touching it. And this is a lot of what that investigator archetype did. This is something that they could do innately, whereas now you have to pay 12,000 gold if you want to do it and take up your hand slot. A very edgy item is the Soul Scribe Quill. As long as you're within five feet of a living creature, you take this blood red quill and you start writing a sentence in the air describing their death, and if they fail the will save, they die that way, so it's like a death note in the air that everyone can see how edgy you are, and then you kind of absorb their life force, and you get some bonuses to pluff and diplomacy and some profane bonuses. I just love the visual of, and then this guy died like an idiot, period. Uh, <laughs> it happened! I don't know, it's... I already have a creature with negative one hit points. I can kill it with a rock. Or you can embarrass it for the rest of its unlife. I guess, I guess. <laughs> well, that's the end of chapter one. Let's move on to chapter two. Running planar adventures. There's 34 pages here. Here they tell you what to expect when you look at the planar stat box. Uh, gravity traits. Time traits. So obviously those are like, how does gravity work or time pass on this plane? Realm traits, like actual physical area, such as is it finite or is it unmeasurable? For example, the material plane is finite. Structural traits, how structures are affected and can they be affected in this plane? Essence traits, like is it fire, air, negative energy? Alignment traits and magic traits. And there's just one cool thing here. It's like one of the traits can be dead magic. And the idea that magic could be dead on an entire plane just sounds so cool. Then they shift into what happens when you die, the river of souls. Now, I'm going to cover this in a little more detail than we usually do for the book reviews, just because I find it really, really interesting. So, Christian, are you ready to hear what happens after you die? Is it something that I want to unlearn? Will it plague my mind for the rest of eternity? Uh, no, it'll probably just plague your mind until you die, and then it's just going to happen. So, uh, what happens is, okay, well, it's a little embarrassing, but if you didn't believe in the Bible, you go to hell! <laughs> Jesus is the only just way. Just me, specifically? Yes, I'm talking to you, Christian. <laughs> so, souls manifest on the ethereal plane and journey along the river of souls, where they make their way to the boneyard. There's... Their psychopomps and emissaries from various planes usher you to Phrasma's courts. Phrasma is a deity. There you judge based off of your life by her servants. If you have a clear destination in the afterlife, such as you're devoted to a specific deity, you're sorted by lesser courts and directed towards your fate. Higher courts will judge souls with peculiar fates or less certain destinations, while Phrasma herself sits in judgment over the most extraordinary cases. Each soul is directed through one of the countless gates emerging within its new home in the afterlife. There you become a petitioner, something we've seen in the bestiary before. It's someone who has had their memory and personality wiped away, allowing them to maybe ascend to a higher form of outsider life. You'll gradually merge with the structure of the plane that you're in or be destroyed by peril, misadventure, or predators. When a petitioner dies, its body decays away, its energy recycled back into the quintessence of that plane. Quintessence is just like to be a word for ma matter, but 
and and not the plane of the material plane. And what happens to a petitioner once it arrives in a plane is up to the rulers of that plane or the nature of that plane. So those who are destined to be resurrected stay in the boneyard awaiting it. Uh, and I'll let you know that a lot of what I just said uh, was direct quotes. Ghosts, haunts, and the like are created by people too angry or otherwise resist the pull to move on to the boneyard. Uh, becoming a petitioner doesn't sound great. The afterlife doesn't sound like awesome. Being sorted seems less for like you than for whatever goals the denizens of the planes have so that they can each have a certain number of petitioners. Okay, now I'm in that, oh, I get sent off to hell where they decide to enslave me or I, or I go to Nirvana where I become one of the animals of that plane because they need more quintessence. This seems just like a, a measuring of quintessence to make sure each plane gets a certain amount. Doesn't sound great for us when we die. There's not a lot of good results for us. Well, a big part of it is that the maelstrom is this one plane that's, well, not really a plane, it's more of a nether that's consuming planes. So as they start running out of quintessence, they don't get enough, they could get consumed by the maelstrom. But I like the idea that death still doesn't, you don't get to just live on like, I died, oh, it's just me, but I'm a spirit. I, I like the concept of death actually being something that's irreversible and very much changing you at your core as to what you are, not just as a person, but as something that exists, something that on a spiritual level. It's pretty severe, though. Losing your memory and essentially all of your personality, you might as well not be you anymore. You're not. You died. You Afterlife don't owe you anything. I guess. But there's a cool spell here that I want to talk about because I thought here it would make more sense. It's called Judgment Undone. It's a level nine divine spell, and it's pretty neat where you get to transform the petitioner back into their mortal self. I don't believe it takes them out of whatever plane they're in. You have to be on the plane that they're in to take care of it. But what's really, really cool about it is as you channel the spell for the, the amount of time it takes to cast it, which I didn't look it up and be a minute or something, uh, eventually a psychopomp will show up and be like, hey, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> and if you don't have a good explanation, they'll kill you. And you have to have an encounter right then and there. There's some rules where you can you can pause channeling this for a minute. So you can have 10 rounds to beat this before you'll have to go back to channeling that spell and hope your allies can finish them off. But I think this is a really, really cool spell. And it's it's like one of those ultimate... Resurrection sounds neat, but you never really think about having to change that guy from a petitioner back to his mortal self. There is some verbiage describing if you go to these authorities of that plane or to psychopomps and ask them permission and make a case, it's possible they'll let you do this without interfering. Otherwise, they're like, what are you doing? 1v1 me, bro. Come on. <laughs> 1v1 me, Boneyard. <laughs> no, mag no magic, no magic items. items. Fox Oni. <laughs> I'm Agathion. I'm a Agathion. <laughs> Question. Have we ever seen Paizo lore about what exactly happens to you after death before? I wish I saw this question in the notes because I did literally zero research into it and I don't know. <laughs> okay. I, I don't use much of Paizo's lore, but I might kind of use this. This seems pretty interesting. I wonder if like all the lore from other sources like the bestiary, say the Four Horsemen, for example, uh, match up if there's like some inconsistencies over the years. I believe the majority of what we know uh, or what we knew of the afterlife was alluded to in other books. It was never explicitly stated as clearly as a journey as this is, but we knew that you go to the boneyard, you get judged. We just didn't know about quintessence, I don't think. We didn't know about the actual ABC of the journey. Well, it tells you about the origin of souls, how they originate in the positive energy plane where quintessence becomes souls, and they seep into the first world and then the material plane, drifting through the ethereal plane, where a soul is bestowed upon things. 
Then it talks about the role of the divine and how there's like an arms race between deities, both big and small. And it gets out of control really quick. So there's a self-imposed ban on direct interaction with the material plane. They influence the material plane through their worshippers, and demigods can interact directly, and thus, by the way, be slain directly by mortals who live there. So that's kind of a natural check and balance. But I thought that was an interesting thing. They can interact with all the planes except the material, something special. It's basically a cold war between all the other deities. Some big thing happened. Desna, like, killed an evil deity, and all the other evil deities were like, hey... She can't do that. Let's rise together. And all the evil deities started, like, getting very up in arms and coordinating. And everyone was like, hmm, this isn't good. <laughs> I don't like this. So it's basically unanimously agreed amongst all the deities. Hey, let's not interfere with the material world directly. Wink. Deities that transcend stat blocks, they mentioned they cannot be killed. Uh, there are a lot of stat blocks for deities, like Asmodeus and stuff like that, uh, and like the evil demon lords and stuff like that. But if it doesn't have a stat block, it sort of says there's no way to kill them. Demigods are usually like CR 26 to 30 creatures. You'll see like archdevils, demon lords, imperial lords, and great old ones. Quasi-deities, usually CR 21 through 25, are like the Melon Branch, the Quillith Lords, Deep One Elders, Conqueror Worms, and Green Men. And so these divine beings get control over parts of planes, sort of like they get their territories, and the more powerful the divine, the more power it has. Then there's a list of core deities, including what a divine gift from them would look like. Some are things you can get each day by performing some obedience, such as the ability to activate shield of law on yourself. Uh, some is a major one-time gift, like becoming a vampire. Let's, let's look at an example here. Let's look at Iomade, the goddess of honor, justice, rulership, and valor. Just look at Lamash, too. <laughs> she lets her worshippers bone animals. Yeehaw! I even mass that lets me do that. Now, hers actually, Lamasha lets you, like, disgorge a part of yourself to become a monster and serve you. Iomade's divine gift is by spending 10 minutes in prayer. You can activate a holy aura or shield of law on yourself that lasts for the next 12 hours. And there's, like, just normal stat blocks that I think we've seen before in other books. Like, what's their symbol? What's, what's their sacred animal? Things like that. What are their domains? Then there's some suggestions of how to use divine intervention, but it led me to a really interesting idea. The idea that divine intervention is anytime the GM fudges the dice or railroads, as if the world and events of the game are being are being influenced by the gods. That's pretty cool. I like in that section, they kind of say with divine intervention, are like, general rule of thumb, everybody gets one. And I think it's just a hilarious <laughs> mentality. <laughs> And the one thing to note here is there's really no explanation for where the gods come from. I don't know if we've seen that in another book, but we don't get to learn more about that. I'm sorry if that's what you wanted to learn. It's possible this art was already out, but man, the art for Zonkuthan is so metal. I love how sickeningly disturbing it is. It's great. It's like the perfect level of like almost not safe for work. Ew, that's kind of gross. It's Pinhead. It's kind of, but it's a really well done. Don't no, just say that. No, it really is though. Come on. Really? Oh, what's that? Needles out of his head? Interesting. Never seen that before. Well, I mean, Pinhead, you could show like a kid a picture of Pinhead. It's not like he's bleeding out the stupid nails in his head. <laughs> show a picture. <laughs> what What kids are you scarring? I saw Pinhead in... It, hey, kid, look at this. Ah! <laughs> runs away. What are you I doing? I saw Pinhead in Blockbuster on the cover of VHS as well as a kid. I was like, ew, what's that? I was like, what's this idiot with nails in his head? That explains a lot about you, Christian. <laughs> 
And look, now, what, you know, 15 years later, you're like, I really like this art for Zonkuthon. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Blockbuster, what have you done to me? <laughs> Couldn't have gone out of business soon enough. There's the interesting concept here of worshipping a deity doesn't give that deity direct power. But what it means is that since you worship that deity, when you pass, you are more likely to end up as a petitioner on their plane. As you're a petitioner on their plane, you're more likely to die there as a petitioner. Your quintessence gets absorbed by that plane, and then that plane gets bigger and also doesn't get absorbed by the maelstrom, which is kind of the biggest part of it. And I didn't read much into this. I feel like if I read this in detail, I would find the answer. But Rovagug's plane is actually his cell, the cage that keeps him imprisoned. Does that mean if there's no one worshipping Rovagug, he gets no petitioners, his cage in prison becomes smaller and weaker? Interesting. They they, they, they have really cool art, and they show an entry for his prison, so... Hmm. And I'm sure if I read that with my eyes, instead of scanning it, I would know the answer to this. It's a great mystery I can never figure out. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. My friend Christian and I were just playing some role-playing games. Hey, Caleb, do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. You can find Trailblazers on iTunes. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, grab some dice, and join us. All right, Christian, you come across an obviously important character to the plot. What do you do? I immediately shoot him in the face. Ugh, Christian. Well, the next section is about building a planar campaign. It gives you reasons for having a... It gives you reasons for having planar adventures. Like, okay, here's a quote from them. Okay, you've made the choice to take your game to the planes, but your campaign's character already enjoyed stabbing bad guys on their homeworld. End quote. So why would they travel to the planes? I love that. <laughs> if you're, you're already, you are a murdering hobo, so why would you want to murder hobo somewhere else? <laughs> I, I just like different themed murder hobo masquerades. That's right. Uh, there's some cool notes about abnormality, like the, quote, the PCs might have to navigate cities designed entirely for locals who can fly, unquote. So there's some methods for traveling the planes, which I think is exceedingly important and surprised that this is not a complete list. It just mentions some of the major items. I would have liked a, a better list. Most of the lists in this book that sort of tie things together are pretty complete. This one could have used that completion. So then it talks about planar tuning forks, which is the material component for plane shift. Before, it's always just been, you know, an entry and then no one's ever really ever talked about it before. So it's just like, okay, you just assumed you could buy it as, as much as diamond dust. But now it gives you some more details about that. Be because diamonds are an infinite resource. You can just keep buying it. And then there's uh, some alternate cosmologies to what they call the great beyond. So if you didn't like that afterlife whole scenario... Here's some different ones. I'm glad to see like the heaven and hell one with like opposing deities example. While it's not like the Christian belief, it's the Christian mythology that so many people are familiar with. So it's cool to see that there. Uh, planets as planes sort of fit into the whole space mystery of it. I like that a lot. As someone who loves low fantasy, they have an option here for mundane cosmology where there are no planes outside the material plane. Your soul doesn't actually go anywhere else. It talks about how religion would still exist and 
how you would still represent a lot of the mechanics like divine magic and summoning creatures in that you could have a world that is mundane cosmology, but your players or the, the denizens within that world would never know. They don't have a means of discerning further. So you could have a whole pantheon. They don't know that technically it's not real. Chapter 3, The Great Beyond, and far beyond the biggest chapter here, 130 pages. And this is where they talk about the plane specifically and individually. Each plane will get six pages, a picture of what the plane environment looks like, a stylistic and abstract map of the plane, which looks, by the way, amazing. I love the stylistic inspiration, the way they did it. Looks really cool. It's sort of like, it's not like a here are the roads and five miles turn left. It's very abstract and I love it. Art of one of its notable denizens. And it's always art that you haven't seen before. This isn't like, oh, it's Iomade again. A stat block showing alias, for example. The negative energy plane is the nothing, the void. Traits that we saw earlier, such as gravity, time, realm, structural, essence, alignment, magic. Information about the denizens, such as core divinities and other divinities that call that place home. What outsiders make their home there. So that's where you'll see like, oh, heaven has angels. And what petitioners are like in there. Uh, since petitioners change in appearance and in nature depending on the plane that they got sent to, and infusions which interact with the set of feats we talked about earlier. And I think there was even a spell in there somewhere. So why don't we give an example here of infusions talking about the negative energy plane. The basic infusion is you have been infused with unlife and are affected by positive and negative energy as if you were undead. Undead creatures who gain this ability instead of gain a plus two bonus to their channel resistance. The improved infusion is you can use the spell-like ability Enervation once per day, which is a negative energy beam. And Greater gives you a sort of explosion that happens after you die that kills people. Well, at least tries to. It also heals you, so it's kind of like a second wind supernova. I like that. It's pretty cool. Each plane has their own set of three. It typically follows that pattern. It's like a plus two bonus to a skill, a spell-like ability, and then a Greater kind of unique ability. Then we also get an encounter table, which is amazing. This is awesome because we have all the bestiaries, all the resources. The last book, we have everything at our disposal. So this isn't like when we did the core book. It's like, wow, they have some. This isn't like when we did the game mastery guide and we saw, oh, there's some cool encounter tables, but they're all from bestiary one. Everything is here. It, it's it's <laughs> Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Everyone is here. Ectoplasmic humans, Ikoths, Ether Drakes, Pack Liches, Ancient Dream Dragons. Everyone is here. It's really cool. I love this. This is this is the tool for running your campaign. This chapter is that tool. You got your encounter set. Everything you need to know about the plane. Then then it goes into actual text. We're gonna see about the denizens of the plane. So you're gonna so for example for the basic one, seeing like angels in heaven. You'll get information about angels, lore, and stuff about them. Uh, locations, including a stat block for one of the biggest locations, which is I think ultimate campaign is what introduced that stat block. Uh, and then how how travel and exploration works in that plane. So we've got uh, we have almost twenty planes. I thought we'd talk about a little bit something from each of them. Just so guys whet your appetite, just to get a little, little taste. So we'll start with the order they have, the Ethereal Plane. In the Ethereal Plane is the old city, an ancient city with abandoned halls, with the only clue to what it is, why it is, is an obelisk in the center with an inscription that reads, What was ours 
is now for the dead forever and for all time. And if you stay in it, you get nostalgic for it as if you had been there before. There's something familiar about it and you get an, and you get an eerie sense of familiarity with the city's layout. That's pretty interesting. And as the longer you stay, the stronger it gets and it starts getting pretty negative effects on you. Why is there in this, in the ethereal plane where there shouldn't be really any structures, is there this ancient city? Who knows? I love how phase spiders show up in the ethereal plane and just everyone who interacts with phase spiders hates phase spiders. It's like Blink Dogs hates phase spiders. You know who else hates phase spiders? Zill. Those things that pop in from the ethereal plane and lay eggs in people, they hate phase spiders because how could you not hate a phase spider? <laughs> Literally nothing loves them. Something cool that shows up in the ethereal plane is that Animate dreams that have escaped from the countless dreamscapes floating through the ethereal plane, along with more dangerous nightmare creatures, wander the mists of the ghost world, serving their own strange intentions. I think interacting with dreams and manifesting dreams is something that a lot of GMs play around with. It's something that gets written in a lot. I think it's a really fun idea, and this is somewhere that it, it can be written in very easily. The first world, something cool about this plane is that their quintessence is... Here, souls become fey. This isn't, the, it is a void from the natural cycle. Since it starts from the positive energy plane and that quintessence goes into the material plane to make souls and then you have, you know, mortals, it begins its journey through the first world. So things get souls there and you just get fey. I like seeing that fey have a different origin than every other thing in the universe. And when fey die, they immediately, not immediately, but that quintessence goes into the first world to become new fey. And that soul energy doesn't trickle on through to the cycle. Home in the first world is the goddess Shaika. And she has been introduced before, but they are freaking cool. They're the master of time. They're a time god. Shaika is actually every single individual who has ever held the title of the master of time. They live in an eternity time mansion that exists in multiple time spaces at the same time. And it's filled with all cool stuff from all different eras. And sometimes she just asks you, like, hey, go steal this thing from this time period. Have yourself a planar adventure Oceans 11, or Oceans 4. Have a smaller party. You don't have 11 people. So next is a shadow plane. It's a lot of what you would expect. Everything is really shadowy and dark, therefore hard to describe. It doesn't do a lot to excite, honestly. <laughs> but something that's really cool in the shadow plane is in the center, and that the shadow plane is really a reflection of the material world. Absalom, the one of the major cities of of Glorian and the one that the Starstone rests in is reflected. There is a Shadow Absalom. And in the center of Shadow Absalom, where the Starstone should be, there is just a blindingly bright pillar of light that you can see from a lot of places in the Shadow Plane. And any creature that touches this pillar of light gets teleported out of the Shadow Plane, ending up wherever they were when they got teleported into the Shadow Plane. And obviously that's just a really cool like idea for a campaign, for a leg of your story, if they get stuck in the shadow plane, now you have your obvious answer out, you have this area to go through. There's also this neat kind of natural phenomenon to the plane called a void boil. It's basically negative energy lightning that is foreshadowed by tumors starting to grow on the land and buckle the structure of the landscape. The negative energy plane has this place called Eternity's Doorstep. It's a sphere of perfectly smooth black glass. That attracts undead to it. And when they get too close to it, they sort of get pulled into it and disappear. No one's sure why it's there. Some think that maybe someone made it and it's actually like a construct to for like undead population control since there's so much undead in the negative energy plane. And those who try to divine its purpose through magic get nothing back 
but an overwhelming sense of something staring back at them. Um, That's not great. And there is one other really weird thing about it is that devourers, which are a certain type of undead creature, they aren't affected by the pull to it. However, they'll go to it and then just like act like they're listening to it say something or something inside of it say something to them and then they leave. So that's a really cool like mysteries like that that let the GMs and people who have these books in their hands create the rest of the story. There's also an entire planet that got dragged into the plane. It's it's called Fallen Duromac. And it is, quote, a tomb robber's wildest fantasy, unquote. Because a whole, like, essentially, think of, like, a whole planet, all of Galarian, all of Earth's, you know, treasures, that amount, just are in this plane now because of whatever war or magical thing that happened that got it sent to the negative energy plane. That I can already think of. I immediately want to do a campaign where this is the setting. You have to go to Fallen Durobach. And we also get introduced to a new material here called Black Quartz, which you can make your weapons out of. And I don't think you can make your armor out of. But if you hit somebody with the quartz, they have to make a DC 15 fortitude save or get a negative level. It doesn't stack, but that's really awesome. For just the price of making your weapon out of a different material, you're bestowing a negative level. Right now I have a cool weapon that my GM gave me called the Void Scythe, which bestows a negative level automatically with each hit. And let me tell you, it's gosh darn amazing. A cheaper version that's a little less powerful because you're not stacking this fortitude save. Let me just tell you, interacting with negative levels, they're very powerful. And they put that in the player's hands in the form of a, just a, a gosh darn weapon is amazing. There's an interesting template here. It's called Void Ravaged. Mortal things that end up on the negative energy plane don't necessarily immediately die. But if a mortal creature is trapped here for too long, they get this template called Void Ravaged. And they give art of a Void Ravaged Harpy, a harpy that gets stuck in a negative energy plane, and it makes you basically suck energy levels out of people, things like that. Gives you some DR, gives you immunity to death effects, a lot of what you would expect from something that is attuned with a negative energy plane. So we'll jump over to its opposite, the positive energy plane. And uh, here there's a little note here that's pretty cool, where they had a theory that black holes is where material plane meets the negative energy plane, and stars are started by spots where the material plane meets the positive energy plane. I think it's pretty cool. I like how you can, how they kind of weave things into material plane, what we understand from physics by adding this sort of metaphysics. There's another template in the positive energy plane. I mean, the radiant template. Though a lot of things are instantly blown up by life force when they enter the positive energy plane, some things become shiny versions of themselves and they get fast healing and they shine a bright light. Plane of air. There's port eclipses found here. It's essentially a giant hollowed out floating island that serves as an airship dock. They don't really talk about airships in the rest of this, you know, the plane of air description. So I guess there's a lot of airships moving around. Then next is the plane of Earth. There's a pretty cool thing here about Earth elementals that they don't do much. Some are just content to sit fused with rock for a long time, like years and years and years. And then other are like pests that roam around killing anything they come into their territory. But they're in, they are intelligent. And once or twice in history, they have been roused to war. And right now, since there's such a force to be reckoned with when all of the Earth elementals, essentially like the planet decides to attack somebody, what are you going to do, right? That's such a powerful concept that the denizens who call the Earth plane their home are constantly trying to find a way to get the Earth elementals to go to war with them. One day we'll find a reason great enough to rouse them again. My question is, do you really, really want that D though? Is that really what you want? I don't think, it's, I feel like that could backfire. Like, oh, we won the war. We ejected all these invaders out of the earth, uh, out of the plane of earth. What if the earth almost decide that you don't belong there either? Let them sleep. Let them be fused with the rock. Leave them alone. Well, I assume like, what if your house is like on top of one? Then I've got a great foundation <laughs> made of granite. 
The Plane of Fire has this really cool city and this fantastic art here of the city of brass with like a man-made river flowing through it of lava. Oh, it looks so cool. I love this idea. There's a lot of different planes here, have cities where they are meant to not only house, but also uh, allow temporary travelers to come and trade with them. They're little bastions where people from other planes can come and interact with them because essentially most creatures, most deities anyway, in these planes realize the benefit of trade. And uh, the City of Brass just looks so cool. I have to include this at some point. A lot of the other, you know, bastion cities seem interesting, but this one I think tops it so far of the ones I, I, I looked at. The Plane of Water has an interesting thing where some merfolk have permanently migrated over there and they create illusions to keep their homes safe and it leads to no end of trouble for those who are simply trying to navigate the gosh darn water and find landmarks because, oh, wait, that wasn't there before and you go over there and it's an illusion. It's like, please, merfolk, stop. I'm not even trying to hunt you. And I guess there's a war or animosity between the genies and the four elemental planes who generally have the majority of control in these planes or the elemental genies uh, because they constantly talk about the, the, the war with each other and how they're, or the air genies are afraid of an invasion from the plane of fire because apparently these planes border with each other. I'm not entirely sure how the planes connect to each other. Honestly, even after reading this book, not word for word, but I read it pretty, pretty heavily went through this whole thing. And I'm still a little confused on that. Next is the astral plane. I'm confused by this plane. I don't know how much you looked at it, Christian, but it seems to be some sort of like planar highway connecting to other planes. But it also talks about like emotion stuff. Yeah, it can. it's kind of the connecting piece. You can go to the other planes from this plane. I believe the abyss is timeless. In and of itself, it's not like much there. It's just kind of the focal point, the center that stretches out amongst the other ones. Okay. Then we got Heaven, which has seven tiers, much like Hell does. You, you always hear like the seven layers of Hell with the Dante's Inferno, all that. I'm glad that they also spread that to Heaven. I don't know if that has been done before, but if it, either way, I'm glad they did it here. Uh, finally, we get to see some core deities. In each entry here of the stat blocks for each plane, it talks about core deities, and none of them had listed a core deity except the shadow plane, which listed on Kuthon. That's it. So finally, gosh darn it, there's lists here about core deities that take place. That's a lot of planes for there not to be core deities on. But anyway, there's a bunch of core deities here. Uh, petitioners here become angels or archons. So actually, finally, a good ending for a petitioner for once. There's actually now it seems to be a little bit of motivation for worshiping an angelic deity or a good deity or doing good in your life because it actually looks like you can actually have this is one of the few options where even though you sort of lose your memory and stuff, you can still end up being something other than just food or quintessence or some terrible monster. Well, if you just worship evil things and you're an evil person, maybe you kind of want to become a monster. It's not a bad thing. No, it's not like you become a devil, at least not usually. It's usually like you become just a twisted tree or something. Maybe that's my dream, Caleb. Are you judging me? Are you, are you shaming me? It won't be your dream anymore because you'll lose all emotion and personality and memories. Well, I think in most of the planes, like, you have the option of becoming one of the outsiders. I think it's usually you become quintessence and the quintessence becomes it, which is important because if I become dirt and that dirt becomes it and like a, a gosh darn plant, that means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> that middle step is very important. I'm not going from Caleb to tree. There's a cool place here called Heaven Shore, which the angels call Heathen's Shore because 
it's it's like one of those bastion cities and there's actually permanent residencies here for people from not heaven nirvana where petitioners get to live on as animals forever and frolic i guess i guess i have to like it because i like animals right uh oh oh agathions are here guess this must be kale's favorite plane oh uh, get it now all right <laughs> yeah your guys jokes on the discord are hilarious there's an area here where the Olympics happened eternally, essentially. Oh, Kyrgyz. And there's the I... Huh? The god huh? Kyrgyz. He's the god of physical perfection in Olympic sport. Well, His he's... favorite weapon's the sling. <laughs> or, well, no, it's the javelin, excuse me. You sure it wasn't the discus? I wish. Did it... You can have, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles throwing things around, <laughs> pretending that they're manhole covers. Uh, also, here is the Isle of the Penitent, which, quote, allows evildoers to face their pasts and grow, emerging in time as angels should they succeed, end quote. I like the idea of here's a place where even demons and the most evil of creatures can get redemption. I really like the idea. That's really cool. I like the idea. Like th- then That just allows me to add some flavor to some NPCs I might have my players interact with who are angels that had gone through the Isle of the Penitent. So next we have Elysium. This is the chaotic good plane. It's kind of like the material plane, but way better and more unrestrained. So the oceans are deeper. The mountain ranges are wider. The sky is bluer and brighter and bigger. It is the most chaotic and goodest place there can be. A lot of the core deities end up here. You got Gorum, you got Milani, you got a lot of the good ones take a residence here. One of my favorite places in Elysium is the Clashing Shore, which is kind of on the edge. And it's just this endless battlefield where you fight forever, and sometimes Gorum just shows up and smashes you and turns the tide of battle. Most of these planes have a really expansive exploration section, which, like, these are things you can run into. You can run into these natural phenomenon or these kind of creatures. And all Elysium has is, roll 1d12, that's how long the day lasts. (laughs) We're so random. Axis is the lawful neutral plane. It is called the perfect city or utopia. A lot of law and order here. Not the TV show. <laughs> There's just a lot of TV. <laughs> just play it on. And no, it never plays the same episode twice. There's never a repeat. <laughs> it's where the, it's it's in a world a plane where the show never got canceled and the actors never age. <laughs> just have that go on forever. It's their hell. Actually, they have to keep making this show. <laughs> That's our heaven. <laughs> in case you needed your daily reminder that Aridin disappeared and still nobody knows Jack about it yet, Aridin's court is on Axis and it's still empty and nobody knows what to do with it. Aridin's a deity that randomly disappeared and all worshippers lost contact to him and can no longer draw divine power for, from him and nobody knows why. What was he the god of? I don't remember exactly what he was because he was the first living god. He brought the star stone from the bottom of the sea up into Absalon itself. He was kind of the perfectionist human god in a sense, but he's dead now, so they don't really extrapolate on it. People assume he's dead. I guess we don't really know, and we never will. Oh, yeah. Then there's the Boneyard, which we talked about a lot already, but one other cool thing is here is that it has constant twilight. Which I've liked ever since I've played StarCraft. There's a map on there. A whole planet, which is just nothing but Twilight. Twilight's such an awesome time. Some of, like, I have some, like, nostalgic memories of reading books through the night. And it's the Twilight that always just kind of always hits in my mind. Then there's the Maelstrom, which has the Palace of Love Eternal. Where you're eternally young. It's usually couples. uh, But you feel like you've left something behind as you're there. And it reminds me a lot of a painting I got uh, from my grandmother after she passed called Springtime by... Pierre-Auguste Cotte. Excuse me if I butchered that. That's French. 
it's, I'm going to link it in the show notes. It means a lot to me. And just the idea of whenever I look at that painting, I see infatuation, the eternally young couple in springtime on, on the swing, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of old fashioned clothing. And it's, it's a lot of beauty in that and having that like weird nostalgia for it. Uh, just made me like that palace level of eternal is an interesting place i also like the idea of like it's a little bit of cost for being eternally young is you know what did i leave behind i'm so happy in where i am now but you know much like kids when you're in that or any relationship you're in that fatuation stage it's sort of like you forget things that happened before then you're living in the now we got hell hell's got the seven layers as we mentioned before a lot of them are what you expect uh the one we saw earlier Cassitis, which is where that ice shard that shoots ice beams out of it is from, it's the seventh layer of hell, a perpetually frozen landscape where nothing is as it seems. It is ruled by Beelzebub, the archdevil of arrogance, flies and lies. Uh, it's Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebub, I don't know why they didn't pick that. It's open source, but they decided to get rid of the B. He's different. He's clearly different. <laughs> <laughs> Abaddon, where each horseman of the apocalypse has his own part. They essentially together all rule most of the plane. Uh, we'll talk more about the horsemen and the bestiary that they're in. They're really cool. And one of the neat things about them is that there's three of them that have had iterations. You know, they've been replaced. They just take the moniker. Except the horseman of death, who has always been Charon. And he's sort of a secretive dude who, even though he was there from the beginning, just like to share a lot of information about how it all started. There's some cool sort of lore behind those guys. We got the Abyss, this terrible cesspool of disgusting you know it's bad Lamashtu's here our old Lammy Mashtu oh, she boy. adopted the four goblin hero guy <laughs> old Lammy Mashtu ah <laughs> uh, not her again listen she's coming over she's your grandmother and you're gonna treat her nice she's from a different time so you're gonna have to ignore some of the things she she has sex with jackals listen you wouldn't if you were born when she was you would understand <laughs> When's she gonna have the kid? She's perpetually pregnant. That's her thing. She's a god. Ugh. Hate when Lammy Master comes over. She adopted the four goblin hero gods, which are four Bargus, and there's just there's not enough about them. I wanna know more about how Lamashu <laughs> adopted four of the beasts that goblins worship. Do you really need to know I more need though? To. I feel like we know maybe even more than enough. <laughs> the mask mentioned in here no they don't no it's already made its grand debut in the last <laughs> this mask has has completely changed the way i look at if i had known nothing about the mask i'm like oh cool a monster deity that makes more monsters how interesting but that mask so bothered me that now it's just always in a bad light for me lammy mash to get her out of here <laughs> Lammy mashed you. And then they list a bunch of demiplanes and dimensions. A couple of interesting things to note. One is that the North Star is actually a demiplane. Interesting. The dimension of time is extremely hard to get to. I don't think really anyone knows how to get to it. However, if you could find a tuning fork, you could use it. However, there just aren't any tuning forks that tune to the dimension of time. And you can't just make them? Apparently not. They're just, okay. And then there's Jandalay, which is really interesting... Parts of planes, planets, and places that were doomed and got destroyed were saved and get preserved on Jandalay. And I don't think people get preserved, just places. Fun fact, when you dream in Galarian, your mind is actually going into a demiplane of dreams. The Harrowed Realm actually makes an appearance here. It has an entry, which I'm very happy about. This is actually the setting for the adventure of the Harrowing, which I shill every time. But our guest, Crystal Fraser, wrote it. It's an amazing adventure path. Our adventure module, excuse me, look it up. 
It's wonderful. If you find any interest in what they describe here in the harrowing entry, take a gander. And now we move on to the last chapter, chapter four, The Bestiary. There are 34 pages of The Bestiary, and Christian, this is the last book, and it kind of feels good. It warms my heart that the last review gets to add a little mini Bestiary for us, a little mini Bestiary review. That's so great. We get three new PC races, the Aphorite, the Duskwalker, and the Gansey. We talk about them in individual episodes in our, cl- in our race overview series. The CR spread is pre-varied from 2 to 30. We've got 6 under 10 and 13 that are over 10. So why don't we go over through some of them? Well, a lot of them we're just going to talk about a little bit of them that are interesting. So we'll start with the Bastion Archon, which something cool about him is he has something called Ultimate Sacrifice. When he dies... He does like one radiant burst that restores life to nearby good creatures, which, you know, generally he'll have allies with him. So when he dies, he just heals them all. If you're a good person, you get healed. That's a neat, interesting little ability. The Argent Warden, uh, when he's dead, he can be used as armor because he's essentially, you know, just like armor, empty armor. And he has an aura that makes all weapons count as silver. Christian, you were giggling like a little schoolgirl when you came across the Sapphire Ooze. What do you like about the Sapphire Ooze? Hang on, I gotta look up the art again. I love the Sapphire Ooze. A little oozy. There he is. Sapphire Ooze. (laughs) So the Sapphire Ooze. Oh, where is it even from? I'm gonna guess Elysium. I don't know exactly. But in the picture, it's this ooze. And it's like extending itself up. Like offering itself. It's turning itself into a caress of Sapphire. You're like, here you go. Wear it. Wear me. I'll protect you. (laughs) It's an intelligent ooze. It's a chaotic good ooze. That wants to help, and it has the ability to shift itself into equipment that other people can use. I think it's absolutely adorable. It's the great anthropomorphic, well, not really anthropomorphic, but it's the great, like, bestial sidekick to your party that makes annoying quips, and it's painfully cute. I love it. <laughs> and it's pretty. I like having a, a, a some good aligned entry in the beast chair, especially, like, an ooze that you wouldn't really imagine would be good. <laughs> like, player, like, people are skeptical of oozes they are naturally afraid of them as they should be and this one comes up it's like hey you guys need some silverware for your dinner like use me (laughs) the novarut and inevitable looks amazing looks kind of like a clockwork samurai he can parry with his scabbard he'll hold his one-handed sword and his scabbard in two different hands and he has smite dishonorable foe against creatures that acted dishonorable so if you did a sneak attack or a dirty trick he can smite you that's pretty cool Sarush uh, is a dragon with a breath weapon that shoots out sunlight. It sort of acts as flame strike, which is half divine, half fire damage. And in its death, it gives breath of life to good creatures. Another one of those. Oops, I'm dead. Let's heal all. There are a lot of W's. There's a lot of W's. The Rack Worm has a breath weapon, which is Disgorge Racked Reality. It essentially throws up the contents of its stomach doing acid and bludgeoning damage. And I just love that. I just get hit by whatever the worm just ate, and it eats dimensions, so gross. But we have to talk about the Watcher. These guys are really cool. They're very off-putting looking. They're CR 22 creatures, and they plant beacons in areas of Doom worlds that it wants to preserve into Jandalay. Kind of reminds me of like the 2001 Space Odyssey beacons. I'm going to have to play that sound effect whenever anyone gets near them in my game. Uh, it's They have a trait called Inspire. They have a special ability called Inconspicuous, where you need to make a will save, otherwise you can't ever perceive them. And things that are go onto their homeworld, if any point they go onto Jandalay, 
automatically will fail. So you you essentially never know when they're around. And uh, they always get 20 on their perception checks, the most powerful ability <laughs> ever. How can you ever defeat them? But what's really cool about them is that with something like attacks or tries to do anything with the beacon they plant, they know about it and they will immediately teleport there with 0% chance to go somewhere else. They are very interested in preserving what they're interested in and are very upset when you try to stop them. There is the Leviathan and I don't know why they really wanted it. Here's your space whale. We've seen space whales before. Here's your dimension whale. It's CR-30. It's tail slap hits you so hard, it slaps you out of reality. <laughs> it's got good implementation. It uses plane shift when it hits you with its tail. It's disjoining bite dispels buffs, which is really cool. It's a great way to make it scary in high-level encounters when you buff yourself before battle. I'm at level like 13 right now in a campaign I'm playing, and we have a couple casters on our team. So we all just buff each other and ourselves to oblivion and then enter a battle where we just crushed. We were totally outnumbered by things that all their CR was above us, and we crushed it. Obviously, we have the surprise attack going first and it shows them powerful, but we also were able to buff ourselves. So having where this thing bites you and all of a sudden all your buffs are dispelled, that's amazing. That makes you really want to get away from that thing's bite. This thing literally has a page of special abilities, like a whole page of just, it can do this, and it has this special ability, it has this supernatural ability, get get away from its labyrinthite innards, don't get swallowed by it or you'll never be seen again. It's uh, It has 100 eyes, and guess what? That means it has 100 lasers, but each one can only target one. Uh, okay, just say it hits everything. I don't, I've never played a campaign where we had a hundred party members. Okay. It just hits everything. I get it. It's cool that it swims through the air. Makes sense. Uh, I actually would love if it's stuck to water. Like, mm, I can travel dimensions, but I'm stuck in water. This fire plane really sucks. Being constantly knocked prone by this sucker would be a tough way to have to fight it. It ignores DR slash nothing. So that no longer protects you. Planar acclimation is just good flavor. It essentially means that wherever plane it's on, it's considered to be on its home plane. And it's got a really cool death effect. The Leviathan? Should a Leviathan be slain, it is instead transported across time and space to a hidden spot in the first world's oceans at a point 1d100 years in the future. Fully recovered but immobile, Leviathan awakes a century after the day of its death. But if its immobile body is discovered before it wakes from this death-like state, it can be killed forever. I like the idea of getting disjointed through time. We defeated it, but we could, even if we knew exactly where it was going to be, we have to wait 1d100 years before it even appears. So you might you might already be dead. It's like the next generation. You've tasked it with going and finding this thing and killing it. I guess it's the ultimate... Fi- I don't know if there's any other CR30 creatures. If there are, there's not many. I guess it's the ultimate thing to fight if you're at the very end of your Pathfinder game. Then there are the Iriri. Really neato things that sort of don't come in pairs. But there are two aspects, so you might get one or the other. The sort of like fate sisters sort of idea. They look normally like, you know, blue-skinned people with insectile features. So maybe they get butterfly wings or their head looks like, you know, a beetle's head. Some of their cool things like they have aura of fate where if you end your turn within a 30 feet of it, you have to make a will save or be forced to declare all your actions you're going to take on your next turn. That's really cool to make your players say that. That's super cool. There's Chrono Surge, where uh, they get two turns each round. One on their initiative count, and then one on its initiative count minus 10. We've seen things like with in the technology guide, the temporal accelerator, let's get two sets of actions. This is actually really cool. I like this almost better, where you just act twice on two different initiatives in one round. 
It's got the curse of time, where it can fast forward or rewind a target's personal lives time stream, crippling the victim with age or inducing temporary amnesia. Temporal insight, where you gain an insight bonus to your armor, equal to your intelligence modifier, which is usually plus seven. This is just a really cool Im- implementation of knowing the future. You could just give them like, oh, you just get plus seven to your armor, but I like it's as smart as you are to be able to take advantage of knowing what's going to happen. Just because you know, just because I know you're going to come and shoot me, Christian, doesn't mean I can't stop it. All <laughs> right, you still have a gun. I need to be intelligent enough to figure out how to stop you. And there's temporal mastery. There's a lot of temporal, so get used to that word. If a creature uses time stop near it, it gets to act normally anyway, because time ain't no thing. And then temporal manipulation, where it can essentially rewind time into response by being struck by a spell or or an attack and other such things, negating its effects or the damage. That temporal mastery is very interesting. Time stop is kind of a staple of high-level play. Anything involving a wizard, there's not much you can do against time stop. So if you know you're facing off against someone who will make use of that ability, you might want to try and befriend one of these Ariri. They are really cool. They're a lot. Just the theme of time and time manipulation makes it a cool enemy. And then there's a lot of stuff here about depending on which Ariri you're facing. I think it's the two opposite um, alignments, lawful neutral, chaotic neutral, depends what exactly they can do. The art here shows the two different ones. I like it a lot. It's always cool to have a time boss in a CR 19 creature. It's the perfect CR to do that. And that is the book, Christian. Woof. Really, really cool. I'm going to say I'm glad the art was given such priority. Oh, every archetype got a... I feel bad because we kind of pooped on the Aphrodite and its art, and that is definitely the outlier here. Almost all of the art in this book is amazing, like top-tier art. Yeah, and they decided to put so much in. Like, every archetype gets a picture. They didn't care. They need the space. Too bad. The picture's going there. Uh, lots, lots of characters get art and it's always ones that either you haven't seen before or very big major ones. The location arts are super cool. I already mentioned how much I like the artistic maps of them. I'm just glad that, uh, they gave it such a high priority. The organization is good. The, like, I have like one or two things I haven't complained about. Like I would have moved the traits explanations that are used in chapter three that are described in chapter two to just be in chapter three with the gosh darn stat blocks on, that they're describing. But the plain stat blocks and encounter tables are amazing. This honestly is all you need for planar adventures to truly understand the planes, how they work, who is in them, who are the movers and shakers, what it's like to explore them, cool locations. This is the manual for that. It is super awesome, and it's a good, like, final book because it ties so much stuff together. A lot of the stuff, you'll be referencing other of the books, other bestiaries, the Book of the Damned. Other things are going to be referenced from this book. It's going to talk about them. Actually, here, let's look, let's look at the page where they talk about all the references. Three, four, five, six, seven. They reference 14 books directly, and that doesn't just mean that there's, there might be things they mention that are referenced in other books even though they don't uh, quote them. Like Book of the Damned is definitely referenced here, even though it's not listed on the book references. And I think it was a really smart move to make this the last book. I don't know if that was a conscious decision, but it is something that kind of ties everything that has been mentioned together. There really isn't anything that's covered at some point in some Glorian material that can't be included in the material of this book. You'll be doing a lot of looking up, but a lot of cross-referencing the other books, so I don't think it's exactly a book that stands on its own, though in many ways it does. Like, it covers all those gods that we saw in the core book and, and I think um, other other inner sea gods or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that is there. They are giving you a lot of information where you can run stuff like just this, but 
it's definitely bolstered my other books. It, I think it's a great send out. I'm very happy we got to do like a little mini bestiary, of course. Uh, but there are a few things I still don't understand, even though I read this book pretty thoroughly. I still don't understand exactly the Maelstrom and how it interacts with the planes and how the planes are connected, aside from portals, obviously. Maybe I missed something that you saw because you seem to understand it a little more than I did. No, I just act like I know things. I didn't even read the Maelstrom. Oh, okay. P- p- people just uh, assume I know opinion... what I'm talking about, and I'm very gracious for that. <laughs> it has really carried me through a lot of my social encounters. <laughs> They explained a lot, but there still are some things I am a little confused about. I got to call out to our listeners to, to help me answer this question. But there was a point where Paizo said that we're now going to be switching to Galarian-specific wording and names, which I believe isn't covered in the open gaming license, but that they would put the alternate names that are free to use. I think we first saw this in the Adventurer's Guide, where there were names like Hell Knights. And the Grey Maidens, things like that, but that they would put somewhere the, the listing of the alternate names that are free to use. It's imp- becoming more and more important to me, given that I publish a, you know, a product, you know, Trailblazers, which uses names and things. And more and more, I'm trying to be using more neutral names. But I cannot find that list anywhere in this book. I don't know where it is. Like, they don't call the, the Boneyard is called the Boneyard in Galarian, but if you're going to use it somewhere and make money off of it or just don't want to bother with copyrights, it has a different name. I can't find that list in this book, even though they've said before it's there. Maybe it's somewhere else online. Please, I, I would really, really like it if you guys would send us a tweet, an email, or a message on our Discord server and let us know where we can find that information. Because that's good for everyone to know. Because they're definitely using very specific names in here. I don't know. Do you know if the gods are copyrighted? Like, I already and all that? They are. That's why when you look on, like, the D20 SRD that they say completely, like, they don't even list them or their names are, like, completely different. Oh, really? They Do they actually use different names or they just not talk about them? They use completely different names. They have, like, the same domains that are immediately comparable, mm. but they, they are not called, like, Aristotle. They're called something else. Just for the fun of it, what is Iomides? <sighs> Iomides is law. Copyright free name. I believe that is, a, they use Aridi, R. A-R-E-T-E, already. Well, I know this doesn't affect all of you, but I think a lot of you who do do homebrew games would, would like to not have to navigate that particular minefield, and I can't find that here. All in all, very small quips I have about Planar Adventures. Overall, I am uh, the majority of my opinion on this is positive, and I would recommend it for uh, GMs, and I would recommend the first chapter for players. I don't know if it's worth paying for the whole book. Maybe you would instead pay for the pdf it's 45 dollars for the hardcover and 10 dollars for the pdf at the time of this recording on paizo's website definitely i think worth the price for gms uh pick up the pdf as a player because some of these archetypes are pretty strong like the gloom blade i'm buying it for the gloom blade i'm telling that right now or I've, i i bought the book i'm not buying it again i'm saying i'm buying the, the materials so i can use it with my product how you feel about the the gug cloak is how i feel about a lot of the archetypes it was just like a mechanical send-off where they didn't really have to care and they gave us a lot of stuff like oh you think fighters suck okay here's the gloom blade be happy don't ever bother me about this again (laughs) oh what's that marshals are bad all right here's pounce built right in baked right into the crust baked into the crust (laughs) the best part of the pie I think one of our major gripes with a lot of books is usually the organization of it and how it's difficult to parse through the data or we think that a lot of things don't belong where they are I think this book is an excellent example of how to organize it. I feel like it is very well organized, though not perfect, I think, compared to the other entries. 
is done incredibly well. I gotta tell you, Mick, can, Christian, can I give you an exclusive? Can I give our listeners who are listening to this episode an exclusive? After reading this book, I think I'm willing to say that chapter season four of Trailblazers is going to take part. It's going to be a planar adventure. <sighs> which which one? That's right. Maybe. A are you going to give everyone healers hands for free? <laughs> no. Like you should. I think that's not a bad idea, honestly. <laughs> I don't even give them rap. A uh, 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 point blank <laughs> deadly point aim. Blank shot. I don't even give them oh, deadly aim for it's free. It's painful, so. Caleb. Why? <laughs> Not why for me. do you hate your pale layers so much? <laughs> for me, it's fine. That's why I cheated in season two. <laughs> uh-huh. Wait, what? Not on purpose. I think I, if I didn't do this review, I would not have read through each of the planes like I did. I think a lot of you will be able to use this book as the reference of we want to go to hell. Who wouldn't? So you look up all the information about hell and then you reference everything the hell entry references. But if you do go through each of them like, like we did for this review, you're going to find a lot of cool information. But I think it's primarily the way I would have used it and will use it as I'll look up the plane as we get to it. Any other thoughts? The art's pretty. I know we said that already, but I really want to emphasize the art is so good in this book. It's important. Some people might not think it is. I think it is. I think it's important. It's, it's really, there's a lot of tables and stuff, but there are sections of this where it's just pages and pages upon text. We kind of ragged on the GM guide, I think, a little bit, because there was a lot of tables. There was a lot of tables for the GM to roll on. There was pages and pages of tables. And although that happens a little bit here, there's a lot of content this is a hearty 258 pages like it's meaty it is a meat lover's pizza of pages of entries of information i think it's one of the perfect balances i've seen so far of lore and then information for the gm to use uh rules wise the 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 tables they use are the perfect tables. I want to know what creatures are you going to encounter when you go into the negative energy plane. This table is perfect to let me know. And then the rest of the information is good for the lore to get them to travel through and all that. All right. Well, this is the last of the official book reviews for first edition, unless they surprise us. Uh, in the future, you will have us. We, will, we are considering looking over player companions and those sort of things. But for the core book, this is the end. My only friend, the end. It's a Doors reference. And we will close the door on this whole series. Thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great RPG podcasts, visit our website, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? Email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. This episode was edited by Devin Tonnell. This is Johan Martins. Thanks for listening.